0: And we are picking up in our sermon series in the Gospel of John this morning. If you have a copy of scripture or if you're using the copy of our passage printed in the bulletin, I would invite you to turn there. We're looking at John chapter 1 verses 19 to 34 this morning. And I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and be reading along with us as we look at God's word together. Uh, We have moved out of the prologue of this book. We looked last Lord's Day at the fact that uh, the the purpose of this book is that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. And to that end, the Apostle John is giving us a picture of the glory of the Son. He wants us to see the glory of the Son. He says in verse 14, we beheld his glory. And so he is going to continue that theme for us, and we are looking this morning At John chapter 1, verses 19, and we're looking down to verse 34. This is God's word. John now writes, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. is the Son of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, almost 20 years ago, I was working in a restaurant in Greenville, South Carolina. I was 24 years old, and I was seeking to share the gospel with any of my coworkers. but there was one girl in particular. She was 10 years older than me. She had grown up in Greenville in the buckle of the Bible belt, and uh, I didn't know what she knew and what she didn't know in Scripture, and so I gave her a little uh, printing of the Gospel of John, and I said, if you read this, we can talk about it. This is going to be the best thing you could read. And I, I thought, for sure, she is not going to read this tract. She, she was deep in darkness in the world. She was uh, doing a lot of drugs at the time, and, and I thought she's probably just going to throw this uh, in her car, and it'll just become trash. And the next day, she came into work, and she slams it down on the table, and she says, okay, who are these? And she has chapter one of John open, and she has John the Baptist circled, and she has Levites circled. And I said to her, I said, hold on, you've lived in Greenville, South Carolina, for 34 years, and you've never heard of John the Baptist. She said, no, should I have? And I realized at that point how post-Christian America was becoming and had already become, but I also understood at that point how important a figure John the Baptist is, Because John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Messiah. He is here in this Gospel, as he is in the other Gospels, to build our faith in who Jesus is. He is the the witness par excellence at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And while we may not often think about John the Baptist, and we may not, not often think about why he's important in the Bible, he is supremely important, as we'll see in this first chapter in the Gospel of John, in, in being the one who bears witness to the glory of the Son when he stands and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I want us to consider this morning the two things, just two very brief things, the witness of John the Baptist to the glory of the Son, and then the witness of the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Son. Those are the two witnesses that we find in this passage. John is coming to bear witness to the one who came after him, but he says is before him. And as we consider the witness of John the Baptist, one of the things we have to realize is that John is giving us a unique cameo of this man. While Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us a picture of John actively engaged in his own ministry and and giving us what comes before what we're reading about here, John gives us what is subsequent to what all the other writers say, and John gives us a fuller picture into the inner life of John the Baptist and the role that he played in pointing everyone to Jesus. Um, Now notice the witness of John the Baptist is first set out by the identity of John. We've already been introduced to John the Baptist earlier, and we didn't touch on this last week, but you'll notice in verse 6 of this chapter, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. To bear witness about the light, he was not the light, but was sent to bear witness concerning the light. So John has already introduced us to John the Baptist. He will will talk about him here in this passage, and then he will again bring him up in chapter 3 for the final time, when John stands and says he is the friend of the bridegroom, that Jesus is the groom, and that he is merely the friend of the bridegroom. And and as you take all of these things that John is telling us in these early chapters together about John the Baptist, the first thing that we note is the identity of this man. Now, um, that's important because uh, it's a case of mistaken identity. Uh, John was very popular. John was out in the wilderness, and everybody was coming to him to be baptized, multitudes were coming to him and and John had not grown up in the religious schools he had not been trained in in the rabbinical schools he had not been trained by by the Sadducees or the Pharisees he 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 was an outsider he was a total renegade Um, he was in the wilderness rather than in the temple because God's glory had already left the people Israel was just a religious shell at this time, with no real life or power in it. And so God had sent John to begin his ministry in the wilderness, away from the masses, uh, as a symbol that this is what Israel now was. It was a barren, fruitless wilderness. And so it was fitting that John began his ministry there, and as people came to him and were coming to him and he was gaining popularity and he was gaining respect, the religious leaders come to him. And they demand... That he identifies himself. It's interesting, whenever, one of my best friends likes to say this, whenever the church becomes hyper-fixated on centralized institutional power, it loses divine power. Israel became hyper-fixated on centralized institutional power. And, And the religious leaders can't stand that there could be somebody outside of them that God was using in a powerful way. And so they come and they, they say to him, who are you? The Levites, the priests. Now John was a Levite, remember that. John was the son of a Levite. John was in line to serve as a priest. He never did serve as a priest. But here comes those that he would have served with. And they, and they say to him, who are you? And, and, and he's going to identify himself first negatively. And this is very important. First negatively and then Positively. So they come and they, they ask him who he is, and notice what he says there in verse 20. He says, he confesses, John says he does not deny. That's important for emphasis. He confesses, he does not deny. He says, I am not the Christ. Now, why is that important? John has already told us he was not the light. He was sent to bear witness to the light. Well, it's important because uh, many, 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 many people in religious spheres love to draw attention to themselves. They they love to put themselves out there as a great leader, as someone that everyone should follow, as someone everyone should listen to. And here is John, and John is saying, I am not the Christ. Um, The Christ is standing among them. They don't know him. We'll see that in a minute. But John takes a very important posture. He doesn't say, I'm the son of Zacharias the priest. Isn't that interesting? They say, who are you? He says, I'm not the Christ. Then they ask him about three figures that they knew of from the Old Testament. They say, well, what then? If, if you're not the Christ and that's the first figure, are you Elijah? Because remember, John was a very Elijah-like figure there's there's that perfect parallel between Elijah calling the people to repentance and being out in the wilderness, driven away, chased by the king, hated by the queen, and, and being pursued so ruthlessly. And John is embodying in himself a very similar ministry. He is, he is and, and Jesus will tell us this, if you can receive it, he is Elijah to come. Remember, the Old Testament said God was going to send Elijah the prophet. Here he is, and yet he says, I'm not Elijah. Now, he's he's not denying what the Old Testament says about him. He's he's saying, I'm not the person Elijah. I've not come back from the dead. I'm not not that great. By the way, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But in the gospel records, the, the unbelieving Jewish people are willing to attribute both to John and to Jesus that they are maybe someone from the Old Testament who came back from the dead. Isn't that interesting? He says, I'm not the Christ. What then, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. They say, are you the prophet? Now, they believed in some sort of end time messianic figure that wasn't the Messiah himself. They misunderstood uh, Deuteronomy 18, where God said he was going to raise up uh, from among the people, one like Moses, who would be a prophet like Moses. and, And they say, are you the prophet? And he said, no. Um, By the way, it's important in Christianity that we work with negatives as well as with positives. So much of the truth needs to be qualified by what we're not saying or what something is not. Um, J. Gretchen Machen once famously said that the Apostle Paul was a man who could say no to false gospels, to untruth. Here John is doing that very thing. He's saying... Let, let me clear the air. Let me, let me clear up your mistaken notions about my identity. I am not anything that you think I am. And then he tells them very clearly and positively who he is. They, they said to him, who are you? We have to answer those that sent us. And, and, and now John does something very important. Again, John doesn't say, I'm the son of Zacharias, the, the priest who served in the temple when I was a boy. He he doesn't actually talk about himself. He points to the Old Testament scriptures, and he identifies the role that God had created him to fill in redemptive history, and he points to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 2. Now, this is very important. John the Baptist is spoken of in the book of Malachi and the book of Isaiah, and, and the New Testament is constantly drawing off of the fact that God fore who the forerunner of the Messiah was going to be. Now, why is that important? I've always thought this is a point that doesn't get enough attention. The Old Testament both tells us that Jesus is going to have a forerunner and a betrayer. The Old Testament identifies for us that, that Messiah is going to have a forerunner, one who goes before him, and that he's going to have a betrayer at the end of his life. And that's important because that is meant to build our faith, that Christ really is who he said he is. The Old Testament just doesn't tell us about Christ. It tells us about people who are antecedent to him, who are uh, correlated to him. And, and John knows exactly where to go, so he goes to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 2. And he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Um, you know, that's, that's significant because if you know Isaiah's prophecy, you will know that uh, Isaiah chapter 40 is the turning point. Chapters 1 through 39 are essentially judgment. Chapter 40 to 66, a restoration, messianic restoration. And at the very beginning of that chapter where Isaiah says, comfort, speak comfort to my people. Tell her that her warfare is over. Tell her that she has been repaid double for her sins. At the very beginning of the hinge on which the blessings of God and the new covenant come, there is a word in Isaiah about John the Baptist preparing the way of the Messiah. And John, by revelation, of course, from God, knows that he is called and created by God to fill that role. That, that what is happening in the fullness of time, because remember, John really belongs to the old covenant. We sometimes think about John as new covenant because he baptized. But, but John really is the last of a long train of old covenant prophets. He he is called to do the exact same thing that all the other prophets did, but he does it in the flesh where they did it from a distance through writing. He stands in the flesh and he points to Jesus. That's that's what he was called to do. And and John understands that this is the fullness of time, that, that all the redemptive blessings of God are about to break forth in the coming of the Redeemer into the world, that the new creation... Has come into the world, the light has shone into the darkness. And he understands that God is doing something magnificent, that everything the Jews had waited for for so long was happening. Um, we We never want to lose a sense of astonishment about that. It's easy for those of us who have grown up in the church and I've known about John the Baptist since we were very little to lose a sense of astonishment at what's happening in redemptive history. God is making good on all that he said he would do. Um, John tells them. Now, um, you'll notice that the identity of John is also And the witness of John is made known through what he's doing. He's baptizing. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when the religious leaders come to John and they say, why then are you baptizing? Baptism was not something new. We tend to think of baptism as something entirely new, but the old covenant religious leaders knew what John was doing. They knew it because in the temple and the tabernacle, remember, um, the priest would sprinkle the utensils. They would, the writer of Hebrews said, they would baptize. They would consecrate through a, a, a ritual washing all the things in the temple. And here John is is ritually washing, symbolically washing, not utensils in the temple, but people. And and they know that, that John is functioning as a priest, and they know that that they know. They know that God is doing something, and they say to him, Why then do you baptize? And and you'll remember John is baptizing because God is calling the people back to Himself. This is the time of the new creation. God is promising to wash his people. Remember Ezekiel, he says, I'll sprinkle them with clean water. Israel's been apostate, they are in the far country, they are far from God, and now God is bringing them back, and he's saying, look, everything I've said in the old covenant, I'm bringing that to fruition now, and and, and through this act of ceremonial washing, I am showing you that I will wash away the filth of your hearts. Um, John is identified by what he's called to do, and then most importantly, John is identified by his proclamation. Now, in the other Gospels, and you know this, John simply says, repent. And there are loads of people who, today who think a faithful ministry is just going around and just saying, repent, to everybody. Really harshly, in the hope that maybe they'll listen to you. And we are commanded to repent of our sins every day of our life. But John's message was more full-orbed than just repent or repent and believe the gospel. Notice that uh, as the people come back the next day in verse 29, John sees Jesus coming and, and Jesus has already been baptized. This is after the baptism. And John stands and he points and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is John doing? Remember, I told you that John has appealed to Isaiah 40, verse 2, to speak about who he is. And you'll know that uh, in that section of restoration promises that God makes, that Isaiah 53 is in that section. I think John the Baptist understands the unity of that message, that he's coming to prepare the way of the Lord, and the one who is coming is going to be led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. John, John is picking up on the, I, Isaiah's message of the suffering servant, and he's saying, this is the one that you are to look at. But the language of behold is not simply shock or awe. He's saying, fix your eyes on this one. Fix your eyes on the one who came to be the lamb slain, the one who would lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice. Look at him. John will actually say this twice. He'll say it here, and then he'll say it again in verse 35 the next day. And, and what's amazing about this, and, and don't miss this, is that there was a time when John the Baptist didn't really know who Jesus was. Now, that, that seems odd because he was Jesus' cousin. Certainly, they had spent time together. Remember, Mary went to Elizabeth when she was pregnant and scared, and and, and this is his cousin that's six months older than him. And, and he knows who Jesus is, but, but he tells us in this section, he said, I did not know him. Notice verse 31. He said, I myself did not know him. What, what John's saying in the word there, know, is a very special word in which Uh, he's saying, I did not have that inner spiritual knowledge of who he really was, who he really is. At some point, John's going to tell us when the spirit came down on Jesus at the baptism, it was as if his heart and his mind were flooded with the truth that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that awesome? Now, A.W. Pink so helpfully said, While many have heard about Christ, yet in how many circles, yes, in religious circles, may we say there stands one among you whom you do not know. Oh, the spiritual blindness of the natural man, Christ by his spirit stands in the midst of many congregations, unseen and unknown. In in all likelihood, those who sat there and heard John say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world— didn't ever come to see that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I want us to consider that message, the proclamation of John, just briefly. Um, You know this verse so well, it's one of the most beloved verses to us as Christians, and yet it is so pregnant with meaning. Um, John realizes that in the coming of the Son into the world, God was fulfilling his redemptive historical plans. Um, listen to this, Phil Reichen. This is, by the way, one of the greatest meditations I've ever come across. Phil Reichen says that first, God provided one lamb for one person, Abraham. Next, God provided one lamb for one household, At the first Passover, when every family in the covenant community offered its own lamb to God. Then, God provided one sacrifice for the whole nation on the Day of Atonement. One lamb for one person, one lamb for one family, one lamb for the nation, and now a lamb for the whole world. Isn't that beautiful? This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the nations. In himself, he takes away my sin. And if you know him, he takes away your sin. Um, Now, very briefly, I would ask you this morning, have you ever really seen who Jesus is? With spiritual eyes, internally, not just intellectually. Have you ever really seen the Lord Jesus? Um, That's a question you can only answer if you know your own heart. But when God shows us the glory of the Son, we become like John the Baptist. John becomes like a broken record. He can't help but tell people, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's, That's what happens when we see him, when we come to know him. We want everyone to know this is the one. This is the one. To know. This is the one who will take away your sin. This is the one that will atone for your unrighteousness and my unrighteousness. This is the one that will save you. Um, His sacrifice is sufficient for the entire world. It's a sufficient atonement. Um, There's no lamb after him. There's, There's nothing, we're not waiting for a sacrifice. We're not waiting for God to fulfill. What he did, he did that, and so we become like John. We, we say over and over, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is why I think we love Handel's Messiah so much, because it crescendos, doesn't it, with them singing the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and it's the climax. It's the climax, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but right before, right before it climaxes with that, that crescendo, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Messiah says his yoke is easy his burden is light isn't that beautiful the movement right before it his yoke is easy his burden is light he, he took on himself the sins of his people he took it all on himself at the cross he carried the heavy load on himself so that you can come to him and know his yoke is easy and his burden is light well very quickly, I want us to consider the witness of the Spirit of God. Notice John has introduced us already when he says he says that he did not know him. He says, but I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Um, what's the point of that? Well, uh, Richard Cooper taught our Bible study this week and noted um, the 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 significance of the flood narrative in the ark in redemptive history and and you 'll know that noah 's name means rest, and that his dad thinks he 's going to be the messiah that he 's going to give rest to his people and and he sort of does typically um, he gives rest to the wicked world typically not not really and truly and and yet remember what happens as the waters abate and and the ark settles on that mountain and noah sends out the birds that it's the dove it's the dove that says the new creation has come that now there's rest there's rest and and what happens at the baptism is jesus is the ark if you're in him you're safe the dove comes down on him because he is bringing about the new creation through the waters. He is, he is the rest provider. He is the one that says, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. And the spirit comes down on him and rests upon him to show us that he is the one who has the spirit of recreation and new creation that he gives to his people and that he is the one in whom true eternal rest is embodied. And he would provide that rest by suffering on the cross and rising from the dead, and then by giving his spirit to his people. John says that there's one who comes after me who's greater than me because he was before me, and I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize with the spirit, that he's going to pour out the Holy Spirit on his people who trust in him and he's going to be at work in their hearts and he's going to be giving them uh, new hearts and he's going to be washing them and purifying them and forgiving them and cleansing them and enabling them to see who he is and at work in them all the days of their life. And and when they sin, they're going to know to go back to him where they can find rest for their souls. Isn't that awesome? When you have the spirit of God, even when you sin, you know you can go back to him because you know where the rest is is provided and the spirit bears witness to the son by the way if you want to know whether the spirit of god is in a church it's not through lights and loud music and smoke machines don't let any i'll argue with you about that don't let anybody deceive you with that but wherever jesus is exalted Jesus himself says in John 16 that the Spirit will take of mine and will declare it to you, he will glorify me. How do you know if the Holy Spirit is at work among you? Is Christ being glorified? The Spirit bears witness to the Son. We're going to come to the table here in a moment. And I would be remiss if I didn't say this this morning. This is a beautiful building. Some of us are decent looking people. Um, You more than me. Um, when, When we come to worship we have to get past the building. We have to get past the elders. We have to look past All of that. We have to look past the man preaching. We have to look past, if I can say this reverently, the bread and the wine. And we have to see the one to whom the bread and the wine is pointing. So that if we don't look past all the physical things and really see him, we will leave and be no better. We will be exactly like the religious leaders in Israel who couldn't see and didn't see. Even though he was right in their midst, John says there was one in front of them that they did not know. When we come to the table this morning, we're coming to know him. We're coming to see him. We're coming to feed on him. We're coming to grow in him. I hope that you'll be encouraged by these things. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray this morning that you would make us to see what John saw with the eyes of faith. We ask that you would help us to look past uh, the circumstances and the ceremonies and the physical objects around us. And we pray that you would make us to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord Jesus, how desperately we need a greater sight of you. We pray that you would send your spirit as you have promised to do, that he would be at work in us, enabling us to believe, enabling us to trust, enabling us to follow you. We pray that you would send your spirit now as we come to the table, that you would uh, build us up in the faith, that you would fix our eyes on yourself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please be at work among us to this end.